Not I, but the Lord, in fact. A wife must not separate from her husband. But then uh, Madonna and Guy Ritchie didn't read that, did they? They got divorced this week. No one seemed particularly surprised. Why should they be? Divorce seems almost to be the norm amongst uh, stars these days. And, And frankly, not just amongst the stars, really. A BBC website pointed out that... um, Madonna and uh, Guy, their their divorce was just one amongst many in the court that day. I quote, Friday's hearing lasted six minutes with the judge granting decrees to a total of 17 couples. So by my reckoning, that's about 21 seconds per per divorce. That's over a hundred times faster than it takes me uh, to get through an average marriage ceremony. That is seriously... Slick, and actually, for that 21 seconds of uh, of court time, I suspect the relevant people were paid quite a substantial amount. Actually, I, I, I um, as many free church ministers are, uh, act when I marry as an agent of the local registrar, and uh, to my surprise, they've decided to pay us who uh, uh, who act for for the registrars for for being. Um, what are called authorised persons. And um, I got a cheque just recently. It's even in here somewhere. Only I can find it. I would wave it at you if I could. It's, oh, here it is. It's for the princely sum of four pounds. <laughs> I haven't bothered to cash it yet. But you see, um, though Madonna and Guy may have made uh, the lawyers rub their hands with delight, that does not hide the fact that it's a monumental tragedy. I frankly don't know the ins and outs of their situation. I don't know how successfully they might, uh, in their particular case, navigate this uh, divorce and minimise hurt on all sides. I know there are some vulnerable dependents. But sometimes the pain is not too great. But what I do know is that as a culture, we presently are actually on a grand scale in the early stages of a social experiment that as far as I'm aware, the world has never seen before. I said last week, didn't I, that the average duration of a marriage is roughly ten years today. We have seen that before in the UK. It was about 200 years or so ago when marriages were that short because of premature death. And no one imagined at that time that one day adults would choose to disrupt their family structures in such a catastrophic way simply as a lifestyle choice. In Britain today, only 40% of children will complete their childhood living with both their biological parents. The majority now 
will grow up in a household which would have been considered deeply strange in the past. That does occur, actually, in other parts of the world, say Africa, which has been devastated by AIDS. And World AIDS Day declared that rightly an absolute tragedy. But we've chosen. And study after study demonstrates that children who lack both their biological parents are prone to em- more prone to emotional disorders, to educational underachievement, to criminal behaviour, to marital breakdown themselves when they grow up. And on the list goes, not to mention the direct damage to the partners who split up. It is no wonder that God says in Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. We are currently experiencing in our society at the moment a steadily rising tide of emotional turmoil from the breakdown of families and frankly there is no telling when that tide will stop rising rising, and what the long term consequences will be in our society. But what we do know is that as every decade passes it damages more and more and more people. And churches too are deeply affected by this. You know, I remember um, a little more than 25 years ago, which um, I've got to an age where that doesn't seem like long. I know that for some of you that's more than your lifetime. But uh, um, just bear with me for a moment. Only, Only a generation or so ago, The church that I was in experienced um, its first divorce in living memory. And uh, it wasn't long before it was followed by another, and another, and another. In in Magdalen Road, our, our vision to display the glory of Jesus to the world by our lives will be worked out in part insofar as we display the faithfulness of God and Jesus in our marriages. Because make no mistake about it, if we continue to be a community of strong, healthy marriages, we will be more and more unlike the community, the world around us. It'll shine if we're successful. Like a bright beacon. And those of us who are in church leadership around the country know that that is an uphill struggle. Because more and more and more and more people, often through no particular fault of their own, just through the emotional damage that they have endured themselves. find it massively difficult, sometimes even impossible, to sustain a marriage. Now, this morning we're not going to actually spend a lot of time thinking about the detail about how we can have healthy marriages and families in the, in the church's life. That is vitally important and that is something that we do teach on 
and uh, we will continue to teach on because it is a significant, a major theme in the Bible. But this morning we're just going to address a few nuts and bolts issues about marriage to make sure that we've got at least those things clearly in our minds, the biblical expectations of marriage at their, at their basic level. Because we're not always that clear on that. And that's what the Apostle Paul presents to us this week. Last week we saw that he's clearly received a letter from them asking for advice about marriage. You see that in chapter 7 verse 1. And last, last week um, I know home groups enjoyed discussing sex. Because that is one of the significant things he talks about. This week some other issues though that we must look at as he talks about marriage for Christians. The first of those is this. Christians should not marry non-Christians. In the church in Corinth, clearly there were Christian men and women who found themselves married to non-Christian partners. And Paul says in verses 12 and 13 that those marriages are to be honoured to the rest, I say, if any brother <coughs> have a, has a wife who is not a believer she, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Does he then endorse marriages between Christians and non-Christians? Actually, it seems not. It seems, in fact, that he's speaking to um, uh, to, to, to couples where one of the couples has since got converted and so they find themselves in a mixed marriage at the end of chapter 7 he explains what a widow should uh, have in mind when she considers where, uh, whether and whom to marry or not Let's see verse 39 of chapter 7 A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Seems Paul is quite clear here that uh, uh, insofar as choosing our marital partner, they must be a Christian if we are a Christian. And uh, Paul here and uh, and a couple of places elsewhere, he's doing no more than endorsing the whole um, ethos and message of the Old Testament in in which it was vital that husband and wife should share the same faith. Why, comes comes the cry? Surely if we love each other, and uh, uh, the other person gives me the freedom to worship God, surely that's going to be no problem in our marriage. And when people say that to me, I always explain to them, it is not that simple. You see, in a proper marriage, we give our heart to another person. That's how it should be. If both partners have not themselves given their hearts first and foremost to God, there are always going to be problems and tensions then in that marriage. 
as a, as a pastor, I have met the most lovely boyfriends and girlfriends of Christians who are who are not yet Christians themselves, and they come to speak to me, and they they all say that uh, um, they would be delighted to let their Christian partner um, pursue their faith. It's no problem to them. They 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 they, they would give them that liberty. And I have to say to them, actually, this is not a, not a hobby that your Christian partner has. This is not just a personal interest like flower arranging. It's not, not a political interest. If your Christian boyfriend or girlfriend is a true Christian, then that is a deep engagement of their whole person it is, a, it is a profound belief that they have about the, the whole purpose of their life, about our eternal destiny. If that person stays as a believing Christian, their heart will always be in another place. And if they stop being a functioning Christian as a result of marrying you, then actually something fundamental about who they are will have disappeared. And as a, after such conversations, I, I've, I've seen everything happen. I have seen people converted in such circumstances. I have to say it's rare and it comes overwhelmingly when the Christian is prepared to say to their friend I am putting Jesus first. This relationship can go no further because Jesus is first in my life. And I have seen that suddenly make the other person wake up and think seriously about the issues and become a Christian. I have to warn you, I have much more commonly seen them decide that's enough enough, they'll go and find someone else. I have seen those relationships as well become marriages. And again, overwhelmingly, the consequence, despite the best intentions of both partners, the, overwhelmingly, I have seen the Christian commitment and life and joy of the person who was a professing Christian slowly ebb away until it's, uh, it's nothing at all. Because it, it is almost impossible to maintain that commitment to Christ when someone is always, 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 the closest person to us is always drawing us away. And more rarely, 
and it is rarely, I have seen the Christian keep their faith in such uh, mixed marriages. But let me say to you, it is always with the most terrible heartache. It is always, um, has always involved the Christian coming to a point where they say, where they, where they confess how naive and foolish and silly and reckless they were in contracting that marriage in the first place. And the Apostle Paul is quite clear, they should now continue it and they will. And they love their partner. But they have to say, if they knew, perhaps a few years down the line, if they knew what they knew a few years down the line, what they knew, uh, what, what they thought they knew, when they were contracting the marriage, they would never have done it. I've got a friend, she's an elderly lady now, she's retired, and 40 odd years ago she married an absolutely lovely man who is still not yet a Christian. And uh, over the years she has kept her faith, and she still deeply loves her husband, but... She used to tell me she could hardly bear to talk to young women, especially, who were contemplating marrying a non-Christian. She said, because every single one of them says at some point in the conversation, but you did it and you're okay, you survived. And she has to say, but you just don't know the cost. You don't know the years of agony. You don't know the nights of tearful prayer. You don't know the divisions in my heart that I've had to endure all of my life. Today, her husband is a sick man and uh, uh, facing death. And she says today that 40 years on, his lack of faith is an even more intense cause of pain to her. That's the truth. If a Christian is contemplating marrying a non-Christian, you must take it seriously. Must put Jesus first. That's why here at Magdalene Road, we cannot marry such a couple. Just think it would be folly. But also here at Magdalen Road, for those who find themselves in those circumstances, some through no fault of their own, others through their recklessness that they need to repent of. But for those people, we are not in the business of breaking up marriages. Paul is absolutely clear here. Such people should not divorce, so we will love you both. We will support you. We will seek to encourage you in your marriage and your faith. And to those partners who are not yet 
Christians, we will say, this could have a happy ending. If you just see Jesus, if you just realise what has happened in your partner's heart and you seek Jesus' love yourself and find the joy and life and liberation that comes from that, this could have a happy ending. And in the meantime, we are going to love you and support you and encourage you as best we can. But if you're contemplating going down that path, let me say to you, from my heart, don't do it. Christians should not marry non-Christians, says the, the Apostle. And then he says, Christians should not divorce He was very clear about that, wasn't he? In the mixed marriage, in verse 10, he sets out the principle very clearly. So the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband. By the way, that little phrase, not I, but the Lord, and then um, uh, he says in verse 12, I, not the Lord, has caused a lot of people um, consternation. It seems that all he's saying is that he and the Corinthians know full well that Jesus himself spoke clearly against divorce. Jesus didn't speak about um, uh, what to do in the case of a mixed marriage. So Paul is asserting there in verse 12 um, uh, the Christian principle of how someone should conduct themselves in such a case. He's not saying that the first statement has a greater authority than the second. Everywhere the New Testament indicates that Paul assumes that God has given him authority to speak with authority. To the married I give this command, a wife must not separate from her husband. Straight away though, Paul accepts that separation sometimes may be necessary, verse 11. But if she does, she must be, remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. This is a separation short of divorce and remarriage, isn't it? And sometimes that's necessary. The, the alcoholic husband who needs to be away from the family for their own safety and well-being while, while he gets his life together. The feuding couple who just needs space to stop and think and pray without the constant intrusion of the next argument and the next tiff getting, getting in the way. There are some times, frankly, when uh, uh, the best pastoral advice is give yourselves a bit of a rest for a while. But could Christians ever be free to go beyond that? Beyond that temporary separation to divorce properly and to find a new partner. Some um, biblical scholars say no. That's the first view there on the, the section. They say no. True divorce as we know it could never happen. Um, others point to an interesting qualification that Jesus makes <coughs> um, to, um, uh, when he deals with the issue of divorce. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus says there, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. 
So there's a second view, which I've called the marital unfaithfulness view. On this, uh, on this view, adultery is grounds for divorce. The marriage covenant has been broken and the innocent party may divorce their partner. Not that they must. There have been many, many marriages which have been retrieved after adultery through the repentance of the adulterer and the the hard work of forgiveness on the innocent parties case. But there is no absolute obligation um, on the uh, innocent party to stay with the marriage at that point wise and uh, godly innocent person in that circumstance will seek the, uh, the counsel of the elders elders would work through the issue and give the best advice that they can in those circumstances I do believe that the, uh, the um, qualification that Jesus sets there is a real one that marital unfaithfulness does damage the marital bond and it can be irrevocably damaged in such a way that the innocent party is free. But there's a third case that others point to mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 7 and this uh, third view I've called, just for shorthand, the desertion view, which includes marital unfaithfulness as grounds for divorce, but goes one beyond that. Look at verse 15 of chapter 7. It it anticipates a believer married to an unbeliever. And it says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. And the key issue there is what Paul means by this phrase, not bound. Commentators whom I respect are divided on this. I I find them on both sides. But, But for myself, personally, I find it difficult to avoid that uh, um, that phrase, not bound, that phrase seems to imply to me that that the person, the innocent party again, the deserted party, is free to remarry if that desertion is total. This was the view actually of most of the reformers at the uh, uh, the Reformation and has been held by a, a, a large number of evangelicals since. It is certainly a mainstream uh, view. Some evangelicals today protest and say, well, doesn't that just open the floodgates of divorce? Doesn't that just say, well, almost anyone can get uh, divorced? And my answer is a very emphatic no. It's important to notice that Paul is describing here a non-Christian leaving the marriage. And there, 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 is, there is in that case no implication um, that the church can have any influence over that person. 
He never was part of the church. We, don't, we, we have no Christian expectations of him. The partner just has to, uh, has to let him go. But you see, that is very different from if both partners are Christians. seems to me that in Scripture there is a clear pattern that if ever a marriage breaks down, there is a presumption in Scripture that one or perhaps both partners have failed in such a dramatic way that they can no longer be called bona fide Christians. It's obvious in the case of unrepentant adultery, for instance. 1 Corinthians 5 made it plain, didn't it, that that person needed to be disciplined. And although individual pastoral situations are incredibly complex and every case is unique in my experience, that does seem to be the presumption of the New Testament. You cannot just walk out on a marriage and think I can go on being uh, accepted as a normal Christian believer. You cannot. And it is that tough truth that stops the floodgates being opened. But I have to say, I just do not believe in the New Testament that it defines only sexual sin as the only reason why a person may betray the marriage completely. Nor even only, frankly, sexual sin and someone walking away from the marriage. There are other ways to desert your marriage than simply walking away from it. In my life, for instance, I have visited a wife who has had to decide whether she will press charges against her husband for attempted murder. and make an assessment as to whether she is safe and her children are safe to go back into that house. I have spoken to a wife whose husband used to get the little boys up in the middle of the night and force them to come down and stand and watch while she was ritually beaten so that the husband could train boys how to treat a woman. And when I knew that family, one of the boys had committed suicide and the other one wanted to do every day. Those men have betrayed their marriage. The Apostle speaks of desertion here. There is more way than one to desert your wife. Now, Christians should not divorce. Let's be really, really clear about that. Divorce is a terrible rupture. God hates divorce. You cannot, as a 
pair of Christians get divorced without there being a big question mark over the integrity of your faith. A massive question mark that a responsible church, including this church, would have to take deeply seriously. But there are innocent parties. It's reasonably clear in Scripture. But innocent parties are not bound. Christians should not divorce. And then lastly, says the Apostle, Christians should... Well, perhaps I understated it to say Christians should persevere in their marriage. Christians should continue to give themselves in their marriage. Christians should continue to, to minister the grace of God in their marriages, whatever the circumstances. Paul, Paul's um, um, speaking mainly, as we've already seen, to Christians who find themselves married to non-Christians. But... Um, he says some wonderful things about what even one marital partner can bring into a marital home. And they are, uh, they are more widely applicable than uh, simply a mixed marriage. He says even one Christian marital partner brings sanctity, sanctifies the whole household. Do you see that verse 14? The unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. The unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. As it is, they are holy. Some, some people take the observation that the children are, are clean and holy uh, to indicate that they should be baptised as infants because... Um, really rather strong set of statements. Unfortunately, um, from this verse, you would have to imply that the unbelieving husband would have to be baptised as, as well. It's not trying to say that they are believers or that they should be treated as believers, either husband or, or children, if they have not made uh, any, any profession of faith. Rather, it is saying, in the strongest and most vivid wor words, there is something wonderful that even one Christian brings into a, into a home. They sanctify, they make holy that household. In a mixed marriage, that uh, may well be, in God's good providence, an opportunity to see even the salvation of the partner. Verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And if... And, and if that influence is true in mixed marriages, it is definitely true in Christian marriages. Even if it's hard work. Even if, frankly, you feel like the other partner has given up. Or they've got weaknesses and... and, uh, and um, uh, 
irritating, debilitating sins that have really driven you to the end of your tether. Even if you've been many nights when you've gone without sleep, quietly weeping. Even if you feel alone in your marriage. Even if the, even if the marriage bond has come so deeply tenuous emotionally, practically, spiritually even. And you can do nothing to persuade your partner to change. You can work at it yourself. And you can bring something good into that home. You can bring good into your partner's life. You can bring good into your children's life. You can find, actually, a deep satisfaction and purpose and peace, even in your difficult marriage. And you can bring transformation. I've seen miracles. They don't usually happen overnight, but I tell you, I have seen miracles. Indeed, I'd I'd go further. There is an illusion that most single people have, I think I had when I was single probably, and that most newly married people have, an illusion that somehow my partner is always going to help me to be the person I'm called to be. And sometimes they will, and that's great, and sometimes they won't. And if at that point you say, well, I'm lost then. That's the beginning of the crumbling of your marriage. It's at that point that Christians discover that they always had someone else who could help them to be the person they were supposed to be, the living God, Jesus alongside them, the Holy Spirit indwelling their hearts, and He can help them. No matter how difficult your marriage is right now, you can be sustained in that marriage by the God of faithfulness. Because his whole power is available to you to enable you to imitate him in marriage as you are faithful to your spouse. And please God, that is a mutual thing that both of you are working at and it it comes together and it works beautifully. But sometimes we have to accept it is not entirely a mutual thing. God can still do it with you. The believing husband sanctifies the household. The believing wife sanctifies the household as they discover the power of God to live as they should. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Every single good marriage that I've seen and admired, when I've had the opportunity to get below the skin a little bit. I've discovered and I've seen 
that those partners have discovered that as Christians. That the good place that they're in when I see them and admire them has come through discovering that it is God who enables me to keep my marriage vows, not my partner. Christians, you have a magnificent opportunity. You live today in a world where marriage is falling apart. But you have the God of Jesus Christ, the God who sacrificed his son for you, the God who bought your forgiveness at the most incredible cost that could ever be, the God who invested his Holy Spirit in your life and in your heart. And you have the opportunity to live a life that is different. And so to display the glory of Jesus to a world that needs to see him. Christians, give yourself to that in your marriages. You will not be disappointed.